So you, to start with, open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy. Uh, it be Paul's last letter uh, that he ever wrote. Second uh, Timothy, in particular, chapter 4. Now, while touring Independence Hall in Philadelphia a few years ago, when my family was there, we overheard a young teenage girl say something to the effect of, she was talking to our friends, but we were kind of listening because she was loud. And she said, I'm not interested in any history that happened before I was born. <laughs> now, some of you might think the same thing. Your idea of history is what you got in school. You know, learning facts and dates and who went to war against who and, you know, who assassinated who. And you were just asked to memorize facts and it was rather boring. So you might be thinking about, oh, is this going to be one of those lessons? Well, not if I can help it. I will do my best to, to, to introduce you to a good friend. If you enjoy history, you enjoy it because you have had a really good history teacher or you've read a really good history book and not just a book about facts and figures, but about people and the lives of those people and God's providence working through those people. And so this morning, we're going to explore the life of, of John Rogers. And, and really, I'm, I'm doing this not to just uh, tell you about somebody I would consider to be a friend. And I'm not just doing this to kind of give you a history lesson. We're looking at the past in order to teach us something about the future. As those who forget history or don't remember history are bound to repeat it. You probably heard that phrase. But the positive side is those who remember it can learn from it and, and use the, the lessons, mistakes made in the past in this case, we're looking at the positive example of a man in order to help us to learn how to live for the future, in order to help us encourage us in the future. And all this is biblical. Paul, Paul mentions this just briefly in Philippians 1, verses 13 through 14. He's, he's, he's writing this as imprisoned in jail, and he's writing to the Philippians, and he's saying, don't, don't be discouraged with my imprisonment. Because of my imprisonment, because of my suffering, there are far more brethren who are speaking out the word boldly. They now are encouraged. They're emboldened um, to speak the word. You know, the enemies of Christ think that by putting people in jail, Christians in jail, they can silence them. But what, it has the opposite effect. When, when Christians are faithful and, are, and suffer for it, it actually has an emboldening effect on everybody else. It encourages them. And that's what Rogers does for us as you look at his life. Now, this kind of summarizes what we're, what we're looking at as a main point. We're asking the God of all grace to inspire us to walk in the footsteps of John Rogers and to imitate his determination to witness for Christ. We're asking God to, to use his life to encourage us to stand for the truth regardless of the opposition that we might face and embolden us to live our lives for Christ. Now, here in America, we don't face much persecution uh, there is some persecution, but, but really not in comparison to what Christians in Nigeria are going through or North Korea or places like that. But those days are probably coming. But the days are already here where you're being threatened into silence in your workplaces. You see, this applies right now. Although there's not persecution in the sense of the severe, severe sense, 
this does apply to you right where you're at, right here now. How do you have the, how do you have the courage to tell, your, to tell coworkers about Christ when, when your workplace is threatening you to just to silence you and to hush you? Or it could happen in your family. It could happen in the community. We saw through COVID how things change very quickly. The environment in our nation could change very quickly. So it is time for us now to build a theology of determination, a theology that's going to push us through the hard times, and John Rogers can help us build that theology. Now, a little bit of, a bit of, a little bit of scriptural background to help you understand the life of John Rogers. And this is where we're going to turn to the scriptures in 2 Timothy 4. So if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. Now, John Rogers lived in the 1500s. But before we go back to John Rogers' life, do a little time travel, we need to go back even further to the life of the Apostle Paul. So several thousand years, um, around 2,000 years, back to look at the life of the Apostle Paul as he knew his life was winding down. He knew his time was about over. This is his last letter. This is his, his parting words to his a number one protege, number one pastoral intern, and that was Timothy. And he knew that he was writing well beyond Timothy, uh, that this was scripture. But let's just read together 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to miss. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I can think of no one better suited to write those, these very words than the apostle Paul. Paul lays out the pastor's duty to preach the word and to preach it no matter what the opposition is. Now, Paul lived that out before he taught that. Do you see why now Paul had to suffer so much? Because God was preparing him to write these very words. Oh, it's easy for someone to write the words and say, you must endure suffering. You must endure hardship if he hasn't experienced hardship. But we know from Paul's life, Paul endured hardship. He persevered. He was repeatedly imprisoned. He was repeatedly beaten for the gospel. He received 39 lashes from the Jews on five different occasions. He lived with death threats. He even survived an attempted assassination by stoning. He was stoned to death. People thought he was dead. And when they left him, he got up and walked back into the city. Paul is like the Everetti uh, Energizer Bunny of preaching. He just could not be stopped by opposition. Even by silencing. Again and again and again, Paul just lived out what we're talking about today. That is preaching 
the gospel amid whatever kind of opposition he faced. Paul knew that he must preach or die. And Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 16. He says, for if I proclaim the gospel, I have nothing to boast, for I'm under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not proclaim the gospel. The word woe is like a condemnation. Paul, the apostle Paul is calling down, like he says, I'm a condemned man if I don't preach. Because I'll be disobedient to my commissioning as an apostle. Paul was gripped by the word of God to do what God has called him to do. And as Paul approached the end of his life, the Holy Spirit moved him to write these very words to encourage pastors to preach the word, to preach the word. Now, just to set the setting, we won't do a full exposition of this passage, but this passage helps us to understand the significance of John Rogers. Notice the the environment of the command. Look at at chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. But know this, in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, without gentleness, without love for good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, but having denied its power. Keep away from such men as these. You would think he was talking about the pagans until he added that last statement. They're holding to a form of godliness. So this is the established religion. These are people who would claim to love God. What a list of vices. It sounds very much like our society today. This is the environment that, that Paul is going to, that Paul lived out his call as an apostle, but also the very environment which, which Paul tells Timothy is coming. And that's the environment that, that Timothy is going to have to preach in. Is an environment that's very difficult. It's very difficult. And you can see that all the way down. Look at verse 13. But evil men and apostles will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And again, Paul's focus isn't on the pagans here. He's talking about evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It would include those, those pagan imposters, but he's really talking about those within the church. That pretend to be something that they're not. These are, the, these are the wolves in sheep's clothing that seek to lead the flock astray. But notice in verse 14, here is the, the reason for the command. So we looked at the environment to the command. Now look at the reason for the command. And that is given in verse 14. He said, but, there's the contrast. Here's the, here's the bad environment in verse 14. But you continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. So notice the work that, that God's word does. It brings to salvation. It makes you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ. And notice the characteristics of what the Word of God does, its work. It's it's God-breathed. It comes from the very breath of God. And it's profitable for teaching. That is, it teaches us. It's profitable for reproof. It it reproves us. It's profitable for correction. It corrects us. And it's profitable for training in righteousness. It trains us on how to live in righteousness. So so this this is why the Word must be preached. Because if it's not preached, none of that happens. 
But if it is preached, that happens. Not because of the preacher, but because of the power of God. Now I want you to also notice that Paul moves from that. He moves from the environment. He moves, moves from the reason of the command. He, now he looks at very briefly at the motivation to the command before he gives the command itself. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, I solemnly, right? Solemnly. He's, he's, he's calling Timothy to focus. If he were, Timothy were in front of him, he would be saying, look at me. I'm solemnly charging you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word. Notice that solemn charge. This is so serious. He knows that Timothy is tempted to buckle at the knees. He knows Timothy is tempted to go silent. So he is rallying heaven itself. He's saying, look, God is going to hold you accountable in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And notice that work. He's not, he's not referring here to the, to the work of salvation. He's talking about the work of, of, of accountability, who is to judge the living and the dead. Now, you might be saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought, I, thought, I thought we didn't have to worry about a judgment. You know, if someone is in Christ, isn't the judgment in the future, is that not something we can just kind of not worry about? Yes. The judgment for sins is something you do not have to worry about at all if you are a believer in Christ. That is not the judgment that Paul is instructing Timothy of, really reminding Timothy of. What is this particular judgment? This judgment that Paul refers to is the judgment of believers' actions. That is, whether and it's an examination of their faithfulness to the Word of God. It's not, a, it's not an examination for sin that you'll have to pay for. It's an examination of faithfulness. And, and Paul himself said, uh, taught about this. We don't have time to look at it, but you can write a note on where to go look, find out more about it. In 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 to 10, Paul says there, he says, Therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each, man, each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So there is a future day of accountability for all believers. God is going to reward you for your faithfulness, or he's going to, he's going to, to, to judge for your unfaithfulness. Now, what I mean by judge? Well, the Lord worked that out. That's, that's a loss of reward. It's not loss of salvation. But we want to live as believers to, to be faithful to our God, and God will reward that even though our faithfulness, it's not of ourselves. Right? My faithfulness to the word of God is never perfect, neither is yours. But God will reward our attempts to be faithful to his word. And that's what Paul is calling uh, Timothy to remember. That, that there is a future accountability, Timothy. Even though I will be gone, God is not. God is with you. He's holding you accountable. Now, what's the charge? The actual command that, that Paul gives Timothy, that is to preach. Preach. And shortly thereafter, the word. He doesn't have to, even have to say the word of God because he's already set the framework uh, by, by talking about scripture in verse 16 of chapter 3. Preach the word. It's to be a herald of the truth. To take God's word. And remember that God's word at the time was, was um, not all the scripture was given then. So it's 
all the Old Testament, which was written in Scripture, but then it was also the new Scripture as it was coming about being given by the apostles. As the, as the, as the letters, uh, Paul had already written all of his letters except for this one, and now he's writing this one. So he'd given those. And so that's included in this command to preach the word, the word of God. Set it loose, proclaim it. Um, the word is described elsewhere as the word of God, as the word of truth. Um, Paul uses the word here to reference all of that without giving further specification because it's built in by the context itself. So, now notice he doesn't stop there. He just doesn't stop with us preaching the word. He gives several commands. We don't have to look at all of them. His first command is to preach the word. Second command is to be ready in season and out of season. So if you were to take that, that phrase, be ready, or that command, be ready in season, out of season, if you were to take it out of its context, it, it could just mean, in a general sense, be ready to like, uh, give a testimony um, at any time. But it's really given in the context of the first command, which is preach the word, meaning be ready to preach in season and out of season. Now, what does Paul mean by in season and out of season? Well, what he means by that is in season is talking about when it's favorable. Preach. There, there are going to be times where people want to hear the word of God. They're going to gather and they want to hear the truth of the word of God. And they're going to encourage pastors to preach the word of God. They're going to be teachable and instructable. That when they're corrected, they're going to, to quickly respond. So that's the in-season. Well, if you understand the in-season, then you understand kind of the out-of-season. Okay? Out-of-season means when it's not popular, when people don't want to hear it, when they've turned their ears away from listening to sound messages from the Word of God. And in fact, it even includes those times where they persecute men of God for preaching the truth. I was listening to a, a book on uh, Spurgeon, uh, the lessons to my students. And he was talking about open air preaching and how preachers of old would go and preach in places and people in the, in the surrounding village would try to silence them by throwing things at them. They called them missiles. If I use that term, you would think about, you know, like uh, some explosive from the military, but that's not what they're talking about. Missiles was anything a stick, a rock, a rotten tomato, or eggs. And they like to use goose eggs because those are bigger. Right? And they would throw that. One, he talked about one preacher who was preaching and this guy came up with a pistol. And he put the pistol in his face and said, be quiet or I'm going to blow your brains out. And the pastor kept preaching the word. And the guy walked around him and poked him with, with the revolver at several times. But he kept preaching the word. And the guy eventually shot the gun when he's behind him. And I think um, it, it just caught the, the side of his head and caused him to bleed a little bit. And, it, and it, he just kept preaching. And because he kept preaching, there's blood all over his face. It caused people to listen more carefully because they realized the seriousness that what he was saying was deadly serious. He was willing to die for it. Now, think about that. The time will come when people don't want to hear. What will you do? Go silent? Now, we, we have to understand that this is a call for men to preach with a sense of readiness and willingness to serve the Lord at any cost and at any time. 
And this is what we must understand from Scripture to really understand why, what, what made John Rogers tick? What made him do what he, what he did? He was driven to preach the word at any cost at any time. Does that describe you? Now you might say, well, I'm not a preacher. And, and yeah, in, in the formal sense of it, yeah, most of you in this room are not preachers. We could say that. But here's where you need to, to apply to your own life. There is a sense in which you are a preacher. Not in the formal sense that I'm doing here this morning, but in a sense of being a proclaimer of the truth. If you are a Christian, if you are regenerate, if you are a follower of Christ, then you are an ambassador of Christ. And as an ambassador of Christ, you are, you're called to herald the gospel. You're called to tell others about Jesus Christ. In that sense, you are a preacher right, and a proclaimer of the truth. So when, the, when it gets difficult to share the gospel, when somebody doesn't want to hear the gospel, when they're telling you to be quiet, right, or they're going to beat you up, what, what are you going to do? I mean, I'm not saying being obnoxious. Christians can be really obnoxious to the gospel. That's not what Paul is talking about here at all. But there is a time to preach as a dying man as a dying man to dying men. You must realize that their soul is going to hell unless they hear the gospel. And so there's times to persist. And you might say, well, well who, is, who is able to do that? Who is able? I mean, I hear the story of the guy that, that uh, kept preaching when another guy was holding a gun to his head. And I think, ah, who is able? I don't know that I could do that. I think that'd be very distracting. I mean, but the point, that's the, that's the very point. Who is able? Nobody. Nobody looks ahead of their life and says, yeah, I'm able to do that. I'm able to die faithfully as a martyr. No. That's the whole point. This drives you to Christ and dependency upon Jesus Christ. And if you will set your heart to be faithful, set your life to be faithful, God will supply the strength to be faithful. And see, that's the wonder, beauty, and grace of God. Because he's going to reward you for your faithfulness. But you didn't really do it. He did it. He did it through you. But he's willing to reward you for it. That's what a gracious father he is. Right? So keep that in mind. It's not your enablement. It's his. He gives you the power to finish well. You must set your course of your life to be faithful to Christ and to his word. Now let's move from the first century of Paul to the 16th century of John Rogers. The preparation of John Rogers. And I'm going to pack all this in. Right? John Rogers' birth. We don't exactly know when he was born. Somewhere between 1500 and 1505. He was born in obscurity in a small village uh, of, uh, of, that is now just, it's gone. The name of the village is kind of, kind of gone. It's been overtaken by the modern city of Birmingham, uh, part of the Midlands, part of modern England. So we're the McConnell's ministers in rugby England. That's Midlands. So it's in that, in that particular area is where John Rogers was born. Now, what was going on in the world in the 1500s? Just to give you a little idea, give you a little context. In 1501, Michelangelo begins his work on the statue David. In 1503, Leonardo da Vinci begins painting the Mona Lisa. It takes him three years to paint that. In 1505, Luther, Martin Luther, enters St. Augustine's monastery at Erfurt, Germany. And begins his, really begins his journey to initiating the Reformation. Now we move forward from Roger's birth to his education. We don't really know any about his upbringing. Again, it's, it's all obscure. 
1525, he graduated from Pembroke Hall, Cambridge. And that, that very same year, he was made to be a junior lecturer at what is now Christ College in Oxford. That gives you an indication of the type of person, of the caliber of scholar that he was, that he could go straight from learning to teaching, want to be one of the junior teachers at Oxford. Again, what was happening in, in that time period? 1525 is when he finishes, but let's just back up just a little bit. 1517, Martin Luther writes his 95 theses and nails them on the, to the castle door at, at, the, at the church in, in Wittenberg, uh, igniting the Reformation. He didn't know that's what he was doing, but that's the effect that it had. In 1521, Tyndale, right? Tyndale, who's a translator of the, of the English Bible, bringing the English Bible into your hands, he begins teaching at none other than Cambridge, where John Rogers is at. Just studied Ruth, and we notice all the little providences of God. That's what I want you to see as we look about John Rogers' life. Right? This is the preparation of John Rogers. He's being prepared. He's not converted, but God is preparing him for something in the future. So there's no word whether Tyndale and, and um, whether uh, Tyndale and John Rogers met each other there. There's no indication of that. We just, we just don't know. Complete silence. But he would have been there. He would have heard some of Tyndale's teaching or heard of Tyndale's teaching. Um, and Tyndale teaches at Cambridge and begins meeting with scholars at the White Horse Inn. Now, if you know Reformation history, the White Horse Inn is, is infamous. And why is it infamous? Well, it's because the Reformation was exploding in Europe. And the English... The, the Catholics in England did not want the Reformation coming to England. And so they forbid any kind of talk about the Reformation on university property. So no talk of that at Cambridge. Okay. But uh, across the street from the Cambridge property was a little, uh, you call it a bar or an inn, the White Horse Inn. And that's where scholars would meet to talk about what was going on in Germany and Lutheranism. And the reformation that was going on in that country. So all of that's going on. In 1524, King Henry uh, re rejects having an English translation of the Bible. Tyndale wants to bring the Bible into the English language. Up to now, it's just in Latin. Right? You can't read Latin unless you have studied it a little bit. Um, but the English people couldn't either. And that's the point. Tyndale wanted to get the word of God into your hands. And Tyndale's work was was so magnanimous, uh, so good, that later on when, when the Bible was allowed and translators were authorized by the king to actually translate the Bible and to bring about the King James Version of the Bible that we know about now. So that Bible uses about anywhere between 80 to 90% of Tyndale's translation. And they checked it and they went back and they, they worked. But it's ultimately the King James Version Bible is largely Tyndale's work. The work of one man. And the, the King James Version had a, a whole council of scholars translating that. So that gives you an idea of the type of person that Tyndale was. Uh, Tyndale wanted to get the, the, the Bible into the, the, the language of the common people. And, and so the king forbade it. Uh, they outlawed the English Bible. And they would have arrested Tyndale if they would have caught him. But he escaped to Europe to pursue his work. So he flees to Europe. And again, I'll just emphasize that while Pembroke Hall, Rogers would have been in the environment, not only hearing Tyndale, but other, hearing other men 
who were, who were used by God to bring about the English Reformation. Men like Thomas Cramner, uh, Robert Barnes, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer. And, and um, these men were teaching in, in Cambridge, and they were also in discussions at the White Horse Inn. So Hugh Latimer, who you may also not know, is considered to be the best preacher of the English Reformation. Um, and, and so he would have heard Hugh Latimer preaching the, the gospel. And in this time, uh, late, later on, even there would be more preaching by, by reformers. But the point is that, that God orchestrated these events to prepare John Rogers for the role that he would, for his conversion, but also for the role he would have him to play later on. Now, again, I'll emphasize that even though John Rogers uh, goes to Cambridge, Cambridge is a Catholic institution, right? There actually are no other religions, right? Uh, in England, it's just the Catholic Church. That's the only church there is the Catholic Church. So Rogers is a Catholic, and he's a Catholic priest, and he teaches as a Catholic priest. So the the same year that Rogers graduated from Cambridge, he was hired uh, to teach as a professor at Oxford, and he was eventually appointed to serve as a rector or teacher at Holy Trinity the Less in London, and he would he would do that for about two years, and things kind of go a little bit silent with. With Rogers, he resigns, and there's no word as to why he resigns that position. Right? We can surmise it's because there, was, there were things happening in England that he wasn't too pleased with. When he looked at the Word of God, he could read the Word of God. He was trained in Latin, so he could read the Word of God, and it did not jive with some of the things that he saw going on with the Catholic Church. Right? So that's, that's um, a, a conclusion we come to. So he wants to kind of move away from what is going on. Keep in mind, King... Henry is persecuting those that, that actually hold to the scriptures and are preaching the truth. So severe persecution is going on under uh, the king of England. In 1534, we you know Rogers accepted an invitation to go serve as a chaplain to Englishmen in the city of Antwerp, Belgium. And these were merchants that dealt in uh, cloth and fabric, and they would trade between Europe and England, and they lived in Antwerp. So Rogers went to be their chaplain. Again, he's still, he's going there. They're Catholic. He's, he's going as a Catholic chaplain to minister to them. But it would give him a little more freedom of conscience living in Antwerp than living in England. And it just so happens that the very building where Rogers went to serve as chaplain, that Tyndale was secretly hiding away, working on his translation. So Tyndale had a bounty on his head. The king's men, spies, were searching Europe to try to find him. They could not find him. And so, but Rogers was able to stumble upon him, right? But we know that God guided him to that. So Rogers and Tyndale meet for a short period of time. Uh, they met sometime in 1534. And Rogers began helping Tyndale with his his translation, or being, being interested in his translation work. Uh, Tyndale was also helped by a man named Miles Coverdale, who was uh, an assistant to Tyndale also at, at the time. But in 1535, Tyndale befriended a young Englishman who he thought he could, that he could trust. Turns out that he could not. That young Englishman actually betrayed Tyndale, led him, told him that they're going to go have lunch. Detective uh, Tyndale said he wanted to take him to dinner and the young man said, well, you go first. And the young man had set it up with some of the king's um, 
guards to arrest Tyndale. Tyndale was arrested on um, uh, in 1536. So Rogers and Tyndale didn't have a lot of time together. Actually, he was arrested on May 24th, 1535. So no more than a year and a half, two years, they, they would have been interacted with one another. Uh, Tyndale would, would go on later to be martyred in 1536. So he would not live much longer. The, but the friendship that they formed was, was very important. It was during that time that Rogers actually came to faith. So William Tyndale and Miles Coverdale were the two men instrumental in bringing John Rogers to salvation and understanding the gospel. Um, it, it's just incredible to think about the time that, that God used there with preparing Rogers to hear the gospel from none other than William Tyndale. Keep in mind, William Tyndale was a master of languages. God had prepared him specially. He knew eight languages fluently. And he could speak any of those languages so fluently that if you were a native speaker, you wouldn't know that he wasn't a native speaker. So that's how gifted he was in languages. And he, God used him to completely translate the New Testament. That was published already. And then he was working on the Old Testament when he was arrested. I just want to pause here a minute and just help you to see that, that God must save and redeem a person by Christ, by faith in Christ alone. Right? We understand that you know, Romans chapter 1, verse 17 is very instrumental in Martin Luther's life. So I'll just read it to you. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And that verse frustrated him until he understood that the righteousness of which is spoken of here is a righteousness that God grants by faith. It's, it's not a righteousness that is earned. And so the, the, really the, the Reformation is about the gospel. It's about recovering the notion that you can't redeem yourself. You can't say enough prayers. You can't say enough Hail, Hail Marys. You can't go to enough masses uh, in order to save yourself. You must trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. And then he will grant you the righteousness which you need. It's an it's a alien righteousness that is granted to you by faith in Jesus Christ. So, so call upon the Lord. Realize that there's no, there's no such thing as purgatory in the Bible. That's a false Catholic teaching uh, to try to encourage you just to kind of put things off. And, and it, it, it ends up, uh, you end up living your life in a way you say, well, I guess I'll spend a few more years in purgatory before I get to heaven. That, that's a lie from Satan. There is no such thing as purgatory. Believe in Jesus Christ today. Have faith in Jesus Christ, and God will grant you the righteousness that you need in order to go straight to heaven upon your death. Now, there's still more critical details of Roger's life we need to cover that help us understand who he is in the Reformation. Right? He's still not playing any kind of role in the Reformation up to this point. Now, when Tyndale is arrested... Rogers is working with him as far as the translation work, but he wasn't with Tyndale. And so when Tyndale is arrested, keep in mind, he was, he was arrested not far from where he was working, where all his manuscripts are, where his translation was. He was working to translate the Old Testament. We don't know really how, but in, in some fashion, Rogers was able to get uh, Tyndale's work, and he and, and Miles Coverdale were able to get it out of the building. Before the king sent his, you know, sent the guards into the building to capture it all. Because they wanted to capture it and they wanted to destroy it and burn it. Right? So that's what was going on. 
So somehow Rogers and Miles Coverdale get copies of what uh, Tyndale had already worked on. And, and Rogers immediately goes to work. Obviously, he has to live somewhere else. He's still in Antwerp, but hidden. But, and, and really, Rogers is not on the radar of the king. Rogers is a Catholic priest. So Rogers isn't on the, on the radar, and I don't think either Miles Coverdale was either. So the king didn't know really what happened to any of these manuscripts, any of these translations, and they, they go to work. Miles Coverdale produces, is the first to produce uh, an English Bible containing the, the New and Old Testament. But in his case, Miles Coverdale was not an Old Testament scholar. He could not look at the Greek, he could not look at the Hebrew and translate that into English. So he relied upon the Septuagint, he, um, not the Septuagint, sorry, he, he relied upon the, um, the, the Latin translation, uh, and he also relied upon Martin Luther's translation, so he knew German. But he didn't take it from the original languages, except where that was already done by Tyndale. In Rogers' case, Rogers goes to work on translating the Bible, but Rogers understands Hebrew. He, he knows Hebrew, and so he's able to translate what's, what's left of Tyndale's work. He's translating it from the original languages into English, and he produces what is, what is known as the Thomas Matthew Bible. Now, why is it called the Thomas Matthew Bible? Well, it's largely called Thomas Matthew because it's a, it's a pseudonym. It, he was wanting to hide who it really was from. It's really Tyndale's work. But Tyndale was, was bad news. Any Bible with Tyndale's name on it would be immediately banished, would be immediately burned. So he didn't want Tyndale's name on it. He also didn't want his name on it because he, didn't, he wasn't the primary author, but he didn't want to put himself also in harm's way. So he used the name of, of two of Jesus' disciples, Thomas and Matthew, put it together, and that was the pseudonym, Thomas Matthew. Uh, so that was the author of, of that particular Bible. Now, what's interesting about the, the Matthew's Bible just to hit it real quickly, it was the first Bible with notes, right? He put notes and commentary, and he, he, he did what we would consider plagiarism today, but he was just helping one people grow. He would take what he, what he heard from Luther. He was taking what he heard from, from other reformers and putting those notes and compiling those notes. He was taking Tyndale's notes. He was putting all them in. He, he created what was the first concordance of the Bible. He created a preface and a really a, a, almost a, a, the first study Bible. It, it really is the first English study Bible ever to be produced. And so if you have a study Bible at home or in your hands, in part, that's, that pattern was set by John Rogers. And the, the, the translation of the Bible was so good that those in England wanted to bring that in and get the king's permission. Now, King Henry was back and forth. He was a Catholic one day, and the next day he wanted to support the Reformation. Why did he do that? Well, I don't have time to get into King Henry's life, but he had six wives, and that tells you a little bit something about him. He had two killed, and he tried to divorce and annul the others, and he was trying to get a male heir uh, to the throne. And so all, there's all that mix in there. But he, he supported the Reformation when he thought it would help his political uh, stance with England. Uh, with the Catholic Church. He removed, he actually initiated the English Reformation because he assumed authority over the Church of England. He removed himself out from underneath the authority of the, of the Pope. And there's a whole, um, all the political maneuvering that goes on about that. But all that to say is the Matthews Bible was the first Bible to be authorized by the King of England. And if he had known that he was authorizing a Tyndale Bible, he would have croaked on the spot. 
But he didn't. He didn't know that. It was hidden. And so um, the Matthews Bible was authorized by the King of England. They printed 1,500 copies and ordered churches to purchase a copy, put it in the church building. They would chain it to the pulpit so no one could take it or steal it. But it was to be open for people to read. So to read the Word of God, you had to go to the church building. Now, keep in mind, there was Reformation going on, but there were still many of the Catholic priests, and they did not like this at all because they thought the Word of God should only be in Latin. And they were cooperating because they had to, but they didn't want to. Now, fast forward. We've got to skip some things. Rogers, because of all that's going on in Antwerp, um, and while he's working on, on the translation in Antwerp, he meets a lady and marries her. Her name is Adriana. In 1536, Rogers moves to Wittenberg. Right? He moves to go learn from Luther and, um, and um, Melanchthon, who is working with Luther. So it's so interesting how the lives of the Reformers connect in this way. Uh, Rogers studied there under uh, Luther and Melanchthon. And Melanchthon is said to have really taken a liking to Rogers and discipled him in many ways. Rogers goes on to pastor a German church in Saxony. And keep in mind, he would have had to learn German and learn German well enough to be able to preach and teach and pastor them. And he did that in uh, 1543 until things change. Now, in 1548, uh, we, we believe that Rogers went back to England. Why did he go back? Because King Henry died and his son Edward the sixth ascended to the throne. Edward was nine years old. But was, God had prepared young Edward by giving him Protestant tutors who had trained him in Reformation. And so when Edward came to the throne, he and those who were helping to lead England at that time began a Reformation of the Church of England. And they stopped persecuting um, the, the English reformers. And in fact, Thomas Cramner, who would come in, he would authorize John Knox to go preaching around England. So now the word of God had to be preached by order of the king. All that is going on. Rogers believes it's safe to return, and it is safe to return, but he also returns out of a sense of duty. He knows the word of God. He's captured by the word of God, and he wants his people to understand the word of God. So Rogers is quiet for a few years. He doesn't have any official role, but he has none the doubt. He has no doubt working behind the scenes to help people understand the Word of God. And in 1550, Rogers was given several teaching positions at, at several different churches: two, and then a third, and yet a fourth. And that might sound strange to us, uh, but that was common at the time for a, for a priest to have various duties at various different church buildings that are around that he would teach at. And each one of these positions would bring him a little more stipend so he could support his family. Uh, when, when Rogers moved to England, he had eight children. Uh, he had 11 children by the time that he died. So he had quite a few mouths to feed. So that, that helped him uh, quite a bit with that. But even during this time when it's favorable to preach, Rogers was preaching boldly. He was tackling uh, misuse of, of abbey lands, that is lands that were owned by the Catholic Church, uh, by, the, by the Church of England, we'll put it at that, that stage. He also preached on the misuse of, of like priestly wardrobes. So the, the parliament wanted the priests to wear a certain, kind of gar, uh, a certain kind of garbs and a square hat around town, and he, ha, he would have none of that. 
And he said, it's, it's not biblical. And he eventually said, I'll wear one of those robes, one of those hats. If all the Catholic priests would put a symbol of the Eucharist on their sleeve and walk around the town with identifying them as like Catholics. And of course, it wasn't that popular to be a Catholic priest at that time uh, in support of, of um, the Catholic view of the mass. So they would not do that. So Roger said he would not wear um, their little silly hats as well. So again, it just shows you, even in favorable times, Rogers is convinced to preach the truth. Now what happens out of season? Well, fast forward. Edward dies very young, unexpectedly, of tuberculosis. There's a struggle for power. Mary is next in line to the throne. But he knows, and others know, that if she ascends to the throne, she's extremely Catholic and will take, take the, the English church back into Catholicism. They don't want that. So Edward will puts in his will for Lady Jane Grey, a relative, but, but not a direct descendant of the throne, to be named queen. All right? That's not really, it's debatable whether that's allowed or not, but most historians would say it's illegitimate to do so. Even though he was king, he had to follow the line of kings. Right? So it seems like Mary had a more legitimate claim to the throne. So Lady Jane Grey, you can read about her life, the queen of nine days. Uh, there's a nice book written about her, Lady Jane Grey that you can read more about her life. But Mary ascends to the throne. Those who are loyal to Mary, many soldiers were still Catholics. They helped Mary seize the throne within uh, just nine days. So a lot changes. But before it changes, um, there's a, on, the, on, Oct uh, sorry, on July 9th, uh, when, when Lady Jane Grey was queen, Bishop Ridley, who I've mentioned before, he preached a sermon at a prominent church called St. Paul's Cross. And this is a large open-air churchyard, so they would sit in the platform and preach in the courtyard, not, not inside like we have today. And he preached a message that was, I would describe it as very political. He preached a pro-Lady Jane Grey message on why, we should, why they should support Lady Jane Grey. His sermon was violent in its denunciations of the Princess Mary, whom he represented as, uh, as thoroughly papist, not as uh, Catholic, and the political the political anti-Mary theme of his message would seal Ridley's fate once Mary claimed the throne. Just one week later, after that political message, things changed. Lady Jane Grey is out of the scene. She's imprisoned. And Mary uh, ascends to the throne. And Rogers is asked to preach. Uh, that's just one week after all this happens. At a very prominent church on July 16th, 1553. So, and, and when he goes to preach, he just preaches the word. They were assigned when they were, the priests would be assigned when they were to preach and what they had preached, he was assigned a gospel. He preached from the gospel that was assigned to him. And he just preached the gospel. He preached the scriptures. He didn't get political. He didn't say anything about Mary. He didn't say anything about Lady Jane Grey. He just preached the scriptures. Now, let me just quote how one historian puts it. He says, his message was confined exclusively to an exposition of the gospel for the day and demonstrated moderate and sound judgment. Rogers was never deliberately offensive, nor did he use the pulpit as an opportunity to show any partisan or political bias. When necessary, he was firm in his stand for truth and boldly denounced abuses and wickedness, even in high places, so he could never be accused of weakness or cowardice. But in this sermon, he, he judged it rightly that any attack on Mary on that holy day would be ill-timed and uncalled for, and so restricted himself to preaching the plain gospel. And even though Rogers refused the temptation to get political and stick, stuck with the message, that was sufficient enough 
to make him a marked man in the eyes of Mary and the, the leaders, uh, religious leaders who are helping Mary guide her throne. That sermon, one historian says that sermon ended the career of the mere minister and began that of the martyr. Just a few weeks later, three weeks later, on August 6th, so his, his, his first sermon, July 16th, not his first, but the first with Mary as queen, just three weeks later, he was asked to preach again. Now, what you have to understand is, is the priests then wouldn't preach every Sunday. They'd preach in rotation. And it wasn't Roger's turn to preach. It was abnormal that he was called to preach. And so, in other words, there, this looks like a setup. But they asked Rogers to preach again, thinking that he would get political. But he refused to do so. But with proverbial crosshairs on his back, he preached. And again, he preached the message knowing that what the authorities were doing, that they were targeting him. He knew trouble was ahead, yet and he knew he had a mandate from God to preach the scriptures, to preach the word of God. And he could do nothing else but move forward in that path that God had ordained for him. He, he called and he preached. Let me just read to you again how one author uh, accounts or, or relates that particular sermon. When it came time to, it came Roger's turn to preach in the cathedral. Instead of counseling his people to compromise their conscience by a pacification with Rome, he boldly exhorted them to remain in the true doctrine with which the scriptures inoculate. He warned them plainly and solemnly to beware of the popery as an evil and bitter thing which God hateth and counseled them to resist unto the end the encroachments of this old leprosy of the church and to cleave to the simple truth as Christ taught it, unquote. Right? Rogers preached truth. He preached the gospel. He knew hard times were coming and he preached the very message the people needed to hear. It would be the last gospel message officially preached in London for a long time. But it's one they very much needed to hear. The queen and her, what's called her privy council, those counselors, counselors who are advising her, uh, arrested Rogers and they brought him before the council and they um, accused him of defying the queen's mandates. But what they had failed to recognize, the change of power happened so quickly that parliament had not had time to change any of the laws. So Rogers very winsomely argued that what he did was absolutely legal and he had done nothing illegal. And he was so right, they had to let him go. So they let him go. A few weeks later, they bring in a, 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 a barn burner of a preacher into that same church area. I say a barn burner because this, this priest used to be a Protestant. But in the change of power, he had denounced all that and become Catholic. And he become very anti-Protestant. So they, the, the queen and her council chose a preacher who would be very antagonistic to the Protestant crowds there. And he preached a very political message, very anti-Protestant uh, um, message. And it is so bad that people from the audience started throwing missiles. Again, I'm not talking about missiles, I'm talking about objects. They began throwing missiles at him. And at one point, someone threw a knife at him. And it was that stage that he ducked down, had to stop. But that was exactly what the queen wanted to happen. It appears that it was a complete setup. 
They wanted the audience to react violently in order to have an excuse to clamp down violently. It sounds like some tactics that have been used in our own time recently as well. They didn't invent it. They just reused it. So the queen used that as an account to, to go after the Protestants. And because Rogers was there and one other gentleman from the, another priest was there, they were able to quiet the crowds down and safely escort this, this riler of a, of, a, of a preacher. They were able to escort him safely out of the crowd. And so the queen and her privy council thought that because Rogers was able to get him out, get that, get that gentleman out of uh, the crowd, that Rogers must have planned that. It must, he must have been a ringleader of it. And so he was rearrested. He was put under house arrest because of that. Now it's interesting that he's put under house arrest because all other the political enemies of the queen were immediately put into regular prison uh, where they, they, they weren't given house arrest. This was very, very unusual. And the interesting part is the queen's uh, henchmen didn't guard Rogers at all. They didn't even ask Rogers not to escape. They just said, you're going to be in house arrest. You can't talk to anybody outside of your household. And he did that for five months. He was faithful to that. He didn't try to escape. And that's really what they wanted him to do. Rogers had such an influence within the English Reformation and the people. They so highly respected him. And he hadn't gone political, so they had no political grounds to arrest him on. He hadn't actually done anything illegal in preaching, although they accused him of that. So they actually wanted Rogers uh, to escape. They didn't guard him. And many other of the English reformers, uh, like John Knox, fled and went to Europe. Rogers could have done that. He could have gone back. I'm sure his church in Germany would have taken him back. But he chose not to. He, he knew the path that God had called him to. He knew the negative influence. It, what a negative influence it would have had upon everybody else, the common people who couldn't flee to Europe, the common Christians, if their own leader just bolted, just left. Yeah, stick to the word of God. Uh, you, that's for you. I'm leaving. Right? He knew his influence. He had to stay. He had to stay the course. After uh, five or six months of being in prison, uh, at home, they... Laws changed. I'm skipping over a lot, but they bring him back. They bring Rogers back before their council and they order him held um, at Newgate Prison. Now, Newgate Prison was like one of the most notorious prisons for murderers and, and thieves. It was dark and dingy. They didn't feed them properly. But even there, Rogers exemplifies a godly man. He had two meals a day served to him, very meager. But he would take one of those and he would give it to one of the other prisoners who didn't have as much. And that was continued until the guard found out and then discontinued uh, like Roger's second, second meal. All the while, uh, the Privy Council is not allowing Rogers to defend himself. They're not charging him with any crimes. They're not specifying what crimes or what laws he broke. He's constantly pleading for that they would hear his, hear his court case. They don't do that. Uh, in late, 15, so in late 1554, um, so he's, he's imprisoned in 1554, in January 1554. In late 1554, there's uh, a visit from some of the Pope's uh, representatives. And they're putting pressure, the Pope's putting pressure on England to change laws and to come down heavy upon 
and hard upon the reformers. And these laws would take effect in January 20th, 1555. And they began bringing political and religious uh, enemies of the church of England, which had gone back Catholic under Mary, bringing them to trial. And they were mock trials. And Rogers had three mock trials. And in the first two of these, he, he winsomely won the case because they allowed the church of, at that time, the queen allowed witnesses to witness these proceedings because they thought it would embarrass Rogers. But turned, Rogers turned everything around. He kept driving them back to chapter and verse. He would tell them, show me chapter and verse where I have sinned against God. Right? And they could not do so. And they didn't want to reason from the scriptures because they could not. Right? So all that to say is these are mock trials and Rogers is sentenced to be executed. On the morning of his execution, the, the wife of the jailer goes to wake him up and he's sleeping so soundly she has trouble waking him up. That's how much peace he has about the whole situation. Um, he was abruptly awakened and told he was, had an hour to live. He was brought before um, the, the queen's representatives and he was dressed in his Catholic priestly garb and they mockingly uh, removed every piece to, to kind of remove him from the officially remove him from the priesthood. It was to humiliate him. Uh, Rogers made one final request and that was to see his wife before his burning. And this like other previous requests was denied. He was denied every time. So he did not see his wife or children the entire time that he was imprisoned. So over a year. Rogers was turned over to the sheriff. Um, the exchange between Rogers and the sheriff is, exemplifies Rogers' commitment to the truth. The sheriff asked him if he wanted to rec recant his wretched doctrine, including his rejection of the real presence at the Mass. And Rogers replied, I quote, That which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. Unquote. The sheriff then called him a heretic. Rogers replied, quote, that shall be known on the day of judgment, unquote. The sheriff responded by saying that he would not pray for Rogers, but Rogers told the sheriff, but I will pray for you. Rogers was taken to Smithfield in the vicinity where he ministered as, he, as was the custom. Uh, they, they wanted to march him to his place of burning in order to humiliate him, but also to scare everybody else into conformity. Right? But that's not what happened. Um, the church came around and supported him. Now, they asked Rogers one more time if he would recant, and he refused. As he walked to his execution, he quoted Psalm 51, a pattern of many martyrs, quoting Psalm 51, and he caught a glimpse of his wife and his 11 children, the youngest of which he had never met because of being in prison and not seeing his wife. He was not permitted to speak with them, uh, though he loved them, not even the sight of them could turn Rogers from the course he knew that God had laid in front of him. Again, listen to the, the comment of a historian. From that moment, the ultimate success of the Reformation was assured. The true faith might then be hidden in darkness, and years might elapse before it's, it would again arise to dispel the midst of air that would, should envelop it for a season. But it would appear at last... For at least the third time, the responsibility of the Protestant Reformation in England rested upon this humble man. And for the third time and last time, 
did he sustain it with the unflinching heroism of something more than a man. Rogers was given his last chance to recant. He refused. He was burned. He died faithful to the word. Now, just thinking about the impact here. Hang with me. I know it's a little bit long. Hebrews 11.4 says, though he is dead, he still speaks, speaking of Abel. And that's what happened to Rogers. Though they killed him, they could not silence him. Rogers' example, Rogers provided an example of courageously preaching out of season that greatly impacted the Lord's church. Rogers was the first of over 300 Marian martyrs, so-called because they died under the reign of Bloody Mary. He risked his life to preach the word and teach the word. And the impact of Roger's time rallied, rallied um, people on behind him. Just to give you a little idea. One of the times when Rogers was brought before the Privy Council, uh, the last time, they knew that the people might try, well, the king thought, the queen thought that, they, that uh, Roger's people might try to um, mount some kind of um, uh, attempt to, to release him. And to get him to flee to, to England. So what, what they did is they kept, uh, rather than returning Rogers from the trial setting, the courtroom, to his prison. They kept him at a, like a temporary holding cell until nightfall. And then at nightfall, they, and the route they were going to take, they went through and extinguished all the, the city lamps. So that it was darkened. And their plan was then to move him from one location to the other back to Newgate Prison. Uh, to wait his execution. But what they didn't count on is the reaction of the people. The people were aware of what was going on. And so when Rogers was being taken from this holding cell to Newgate Prison, the people of the town, really this is his parish, this is his people, they're coming. They bring lanterns of their own and they line the streets showing support for their pastor and encouraging him to remain faithful to the end. He knew a year later, they remembered his last sermon. They were holding faithful to the truth. And then on the day of his execution, I have to tell you about this. Rather than the people being discouraged, right, they lined the streets right, that he would walk, the street that he would walk to his place of execution. They lined the streets to encourage him on. They weren't revolting against the queen. They weren't rallying against the queen. They weren't assaulting the queen. They were encouraging their pastor to remain faithful to the end. To the end. This, this day was, is captured for us very eloquently, by, uh, very accurately by the French ambassador who was there that day to, to testify to Mary's faithfulness to the Pope. He was there because up to this point, no martyrs had been burned under Mary. And, and the Pope sent a French ambassador there to, to really just verify that Mary was being loyal to him. So this is what he wrote about this occurrence. When Rogers is marching down the street and the people have lined the street. I quote him. This day was performed the confirmation of the alliance between the Pope and this kingdom by a public and solemn sacrifice of a preaching doctor named Rogers, who had been burned alive for being a Lutheran, but he died persisting in his opinion. At this conduct, the greatest part of the people took such pleasure that they were not afraid to make him many exclamations to strengthen his courage, 
even his children, assisting at it, comforting him in such a manner that it deemed as if he had been led to a wedding. Rogers didn't do it alone, did he? And Rogers is the first in a long line of faithful martyrs. Over 300 people faithfully faced their deaths. And how different it would have been if, if Rogers had been unfaithful. And there were people before Rogers who had recanted in order to avoid imprisonment and be released. And so the precedent was there. But he was the first leader of really priests to, to be brought to trial. So his faithfulness inspired many others to be faithful. Let me just tell you about his impact on one young man called William Hunter. Rogers impacted young, the young, young and old alike, scholars and schoolboys and old men and women. And William Hunter is an example of that. He was an apprentice. Uh, he was a boy by today's standards, but a young man at that age. And the young man's parents taught him the truths of God's word. He would attend public worship at St. Paul's Cathedral where Rogers preached. And where other reformers regularly preached the word. When Mary took the throne, he refused to partake in the Catholic mass with his master's household. At one point, he was rebuked by a Catholic priest for, for not doing so and by, for, for reading the word of God. Um, he was eventually tried as a heretic, but he stood his ground before the Bishop of London. Imagine that, a young, young man, not 16, 17 years old, brought before the Bishop of London for reading God's word in English. And the account of this, the, the boy, martyr, boy martyr, if you want to read it, is documented well in, in the book of, of the history of John Rogers by Sarah Brown. But, but the point of mentioning him here is to demonstrate his, his impact. Young, young William remained, he would, not, he would not recant. He would remain faithful. And though the bishop threatened him, imagine that, you being in the, the most powerful man next to the queen, the most powerful man uh, in England, threatening him with death, and the young man won't recant. He will not relent. And he went back, like Rogers did, show me chapter and verse. Chapter and verse. Could not do so. And he died faithfully. Right? So they, they even accused him of being a disciple of Rogers. He just kept holding to the truth. Right? That's the impact that Rogers needs to have on our own lives. You may not be called to sacrifice your life for the name of Christ. Right? But if you are, hold faithful to that. But you will be asked to proclaim the name of Christ in a culture that doesn't want to hear it. That will make fun of you. That will degrade you. They may even threaten, you know, your employer might even threaten you with firing. Now, you need to be careful there. Work your job. Be faithful at your job. Don't, don't use evangelism as an excuse not to work. But when you have opportunities, preach Christ. And if your employer threatens you um, for preaching Christ, even though you're a diligent, faithful worker, I mean, what are you going to do? Remember the example of Rogers. Hold fast to the truth. Let me just close with these words from Tim Shenton. He, Tim Shenton wrote um, one, a, a newer history of, of John Rogers. 
uh, that I recommend to you. It's still, I think it's still in print. Um, if you want to learn more about John Rogers, he said this. May the God of all grace inspire us to walk in the footsteps of John Rogers, to imitate his determination to witness for Christ. May he encourage us to stand up for the truth, regardless of the opposition we might face, and embolden us to live our Christian lives without compromise or fear, even in the midst of many dangers. Our great enemy, that wily serpent, the devil, will use all the weapons in his armory to entice us from the faith and and boldness of the reformers to ensnare us uh, in the trap of of double-mindedness. May we resist all the temptations he lays before us to disgrace the captain of our salvation, either by our silence or our sin, and to bear upon our lips and in our hearts the great confession of the first Marian martyr, John Rogers. That which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. That which you believe will you seal with your blood. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we, as we think about people like John Rogers who were faithful unto death, Lord God, I just, um, I just thank you for them. I thank you for holding him faithful, for causing him to be faithful for your glory and honor. Lord God, we just um, thank you that you're at work in our lives and will give us what we need, the strength we need to be faithful. And I just ask, Lord, that you'll put steel in our backbone, in our spiritual backbone, that we might stand fast on the truth of the word of God in good times, in season, and out of season when people don't want to listen or when we're threatened to be silent. Oh, Lord, do your work. Your people. In your name we pray. Amen.